there's a difference between just going and solving the actual problem they want versus understanding that you're taking an opinion against that, which is where innovation actually happens. Welcome to Uptech Report. This is our Founders Journey series. Uptech Report is sponsored by TerraLeap. Learn how to leverage the power of video at terraleap.io. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my guest, again, Greg Siegel, who's based in Boston, Massachusetts. He's the CEO and founder of Alice. Now, this is part two, so definitely go back and listen to part one, where we talk more about their AI-powered B2B gifting platform, where they're trying to redefine direct mail, swag, and gifting with a scalable, hyper-personalized approach to account-based marketing. And actually, right at the end of our, of our interview, I loved what Greg said. He's trying to scale authenticity. Like, wow. So definitely go back and listen to that. But Greg, I'm excited in this uh, episode is to hear more about your journey. I mean, this, this didn't start yesterday. It was five, six years ago, 2015. Five, five years ago. Five years, okay. Five years ago, yeah. And, and I think I just saw a report on your site that you guys just raised a Series B. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. So lots of exciting things have been happening, but take me back, like all the way back before Alice. Uh, how did you, what was the journey? How did you get to where you are? You want me to go back to college? <laughs> Let's go back. Um, Let's go back. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I started off uh, as an art major, actually at college. And I'll tell you why this is important as, as I sort of sort of go through this. Um, and I always say this, that, that I basically uh, drew, sculpted and painted a bunch of naked people for about, you know, three years, um, which is sort of my my entry level to or entry, entry to the art world. Uh, but I also fell in love with computer science my sophomore year. And I was always a big computer geek, you know, even through middle school and, you know, and before that as well. Um, and sort of like in the, during the 90s. And uh, not to date myself, but there go. Um, but the, 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 I started my first company when I was 19. Uh, it was an agency. We were focused very much on the e-commerce space um, as time went on. So we became one of the largest e-commerce agencies uh, around. And we focused on a platform in the early days called Magento, which was uh, just recently bought by Adobe. Maybe it was about a year, year and a half ago for, you know, one and a half billion dollars. And I remember when it was just eight of them and, you know, Roy and Yoav, we started that and I were talking, you know, we're both basically starting our companies up and trying to figure out what's next. And you know, grew that company, sold that business in, in t- the end of 2012, stayed on for a couple more years, and then was looking for what to do next. This is one piece, right? One, one pica. There you go. One so pica. I'm going to tell you why I named it Alice, which is you should ask me that because you literally just did exactly why I'm very calculated with names. So thank you very much, Alex. You're so welcome. one pica, O-N-E space P-I-C-A. Everyone was like, one pica. I'm like, we're not Pikachu. Like, come on. You know, like, this is ridiculous. So, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, Next business, so I played around with a bunch of different you know, startup ideas after selling my first company. And I came to this realization that, uh, first of all, I was having my daughter. Uh, and you know, when my wife is pregnant, I was, you, start to, you start to understand that the world is very different. And when your daughter's born, it takes you from a very like, you know, the world revolves around you to all of a sudden now the world revolves around this little little Mm -hmm. nugget that you have, you know, that's there. And like the love that you have for this, this little baby is like more than you'd ever imagine, you know, anything ever in the world. And, you know, it just made me believe like, you know, the last company I started was great, loved it, you know, the employees, the story, everything that was there, but it wasn't like an impactful business. It wasn't something where the root and the, and the the purpose of the business was actually set from the second that the business was actually, um, you know, built. 
So I remember I have the whiteboard originally. Uh, I actually did a, an onboarding for our, our new class, you know, for this this last couple of weeks um, today that joined up with Alice. And you know, I showed him and I was like, look, there was three pillars of giving that were that were listed on the beginning first whiteboard when I was like, what's the business model that we want to create as an organization? And what I recognized was when I started my first business at 19, I wasn't very intentional about like what are the values of the business? What are we trying to do? What's the vision? You know, what do we see as our, like, was our, our, our vision of the future and how are we actually making sure that that's, you know, um, instantiated in the DNA of the business? And, you know, I wrote the three pillars of giving and the three pillars of giving were number one, how do you make giving like a truly authentic experience in B2B, which is super wrought with like fakeness right now? you know, and just like, it's all surface level, right. And it's squish balls and, you know, crappy vests and, you know, all the other stuff that, that people are doing and golf events. I don't golf, right. Steak events. I don't eat steak, like just things that are not relevant to me, you know, as you go and end up actually hurting the relationship more than helping it. So the first pillar giving was how do you give to people to make it an authentically, an authentic connection between people, mm. that investment. The second pillar of giving was how do we give back to those in need? So how does it that the business model, I was very enamored, always enamored, you know, even back in my e-commerce days with like Tom's, you know, shoes, right. And I know the founders and, you know, was working with them, you know, in the early days of, of Tom's and, you know, their one for one mentality or model. And then Warby Parker did a fairly similar thing, you know, with their model as well. And I started with, you know, knew them when they first started off as well. And it was just very interesting just to, to, you know, think about, well, how do, how does the business model fit that where it's just about giving back. And that's where the donation model came into Alice and where when you you give a gift, the person has the opportunity to be able to you know, uh, donate to a charity of their choice, the value to a charity of their choice. The third pillar of giving was how do you give back to the planet? So everything was rooted in sustainability. If you look at corporate spend in terms of you know events and swag and gifts and everything that sort of plays into that, meals, trips, tickets, all those things, so much of it goes in the trash. So much of it is wasted at the end of the day, which has a huge effect on the on the world. And so sustainability and that you know power to give back to the planet was like a core tenant of that. So anyone that's joining up with Alice understands those three three pillars of giving and understands that that is really like the driving factor is that this is a double bottom line business. It's about being able to have that huge impact on the business that's there. So I'll so stop there and there's much more about like it. Right, right from with that manifesto yeah. when you started the organization. Yeah, because it, it, again, it was it was this like life changing moment when you have your your you know your daughter you know in that that specific case, which also affected some other things. I'm happy to talk about too in terms of like I have this very like passion project around like how do you how do you empower women and minorities in business, especially in tech, which is like so raw with like you know the the white dude syndrome you know that that we have right. Oh, I got the white dude syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If I remember it'll be named something else, you know, whatever. But like that's just the reality of it, and you know it's, it just, it fundamentally changes your perspective on, on not only the world, you know, and understanding like you're now caring for this, this being, you know, for the next 18 years until, you know, until they, they go off hopefully. Right. Um, you know, into, into the world and, and, you know, you just want to make that person's life as good as, as humanly possible, but that's only going to happen if you actually make the world around her and us, you know, that much, that much more powerful. And that was something I was missing in my first business that I really feel like was like a, a real big driver for this one was something that had to do with giving back was always was a big piece of it so help me understand a little bit more about kind of the the steps here on that journey so you, you had one pika mm -hmm. okay 
Uh, by the for, way, Pika, Pika is also an eating disorder. So by me naming a company at 19, like you should have slapped me across the side of the head because it was horrible. Yeah. Not only could nobody say it, it was supposed yeah. to be an ironic name because a Pika was a print measurement. I also yeah. found out about a year into it that it was a eating disorder. And I'm like, I guess we're living with that, you know, like, cool. 2020 hindsight, you're like, yeah, okay, well, next time we'll, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll do differently. So 12, yeah. 12 years around there, you were, you were um, in that, but then you, you, what was the timeline here of your daughter? And then you're like, let's start it. Cause I, I see it's 2015 that you yeah. began. Is that right? Um, yeah. Did you like just bootstrap at the beginning? Did you already like, you know, well, let's, let's get some funding. How did, what was that journey step? So it was bootstrapped for the first year. Um, okay. of the business. Um, so it was myself and a couple of interns, you know, sort of starting to build this off and one engineer that we had, that, that I was working with. So again, I'm a computer science guy, so I'm, I'm an engineer myself. So basically we actually built the first version of Alice and I'll, I'll take you a step back in a second here, but we built that in six weeks and that started on October 31st of 2015. We launched on December, I think it was 14th or 15th, you know, uh, of 2015 with like most of the functionality and like some semblance of working order there, right? The experience was there and all that stuff was there. Leading up to that, which was a big difference in terms of how I started this company versus the previous one was that I did a lot of market research, like literally a month's worth of market research on the gifting space. And I'm not going to go into the story, but like I had started with a bunch of ideas, was testing them out with different friends, and then always came back to the gifts, swag, you know, all the spend in corporations. And when I talked to 513 companies across from, from October 1st until October 31st, when I actually 513? hired 513 companies, I still have the list because I went back to that. Um, and it was like three to four five companies, six companies a day, you know, just having these half an hour, 45 minute conversations of friends in the spaces mm -hmm. and asking them what the opportunity was. And you start to recognize that there was so much opportunity in the space and so much money, hundreds of billions of dollars a year being spent across all those different categories. Wow. So I was like, all right, there's something big here. And then the behavior and the stuff that they kept asking was like, well, I, I never send the right thing. I don't know what to send. What's the right time to send this? The process of pain in the neck. I always just end up falling back in the holidays, blah, blah, blah. Like, and then you get into like the questions about how do you invest into those relationships? Oh, well, we do, you know, these events and blah, blah, blah. It was like, it kept going on and on and on where you're just like, wow, there is, there is so many problems to solve here. And how do you do that? And then the other big theme of that was, well, how do you tie it back to ROI? They're like, we're spending more money on our, on our gift swag events than we're spending on our CRM map, you know, marketing automation platforms and everything combined. So you're like, okay, that's, that's super interesting. And then you mm -hmm. got to, then I, in that, that research, I also got to the fundamentals because I would always ask them, well, what's the experience that you'd want? And that's when you recognize everybody said the same thing. Well, they keep, they send me stuff. I don't, I don't really care about. I have, I have my drawer full of crap at home, you know, that I have, or I bring it to my kids and then they throw it out and we throw it out, you know, a year later because it's stuck at the bottom of their toy closet or whatever it is. So all of that was sort of the culmination, you know, around this, you know, around the, the, the concept around that. And again, it all stemmed from those three pillars of giving as, as I mentioned before. So it went from that, we built the platform in six weeks, launched it, had 20 customers, like almost instantaneously, we did it in like an alpha. And then there was the magic moment happened there because we had this hypo or I had this hypothesis that if people used Alice and they sent gifts, they're going through a digital experience. Now they're going to experience Alice and now there's a viral effect built into the business. Well, that just took off. So all of a sudden, the first five people that sent their gifts during the holiday season, you know, leading up to Christmas, all of a sudden, like five more people said, hey, how do we get any access to Alice so we can send off gifts to our employees or blah, 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 or whatever it was. And then that was where I was like, bing, there's the, there's the magic, the, you know, the magical idea. How do we harness that? And how do we use that and leverage that as a, as a big thing? And every bigger brand that started using Alice gave us more brand exposure 
gave us more trust in the space. And then that helped to obviously build, you know, build us into where, where we were. And you had made a mention in, in this, our last um, discussion here that you're, you're focused on mid-market enterprise. When you began, you probably were taking almost any business at the beginning. Yep. Yeah. And then you yep. just slowly worked your way up until you got into the enterprise organizations. Is that yeah, right? The, yeah. The pro and the con of Alice, um, especially in a space like this, is that every company, every department, in every company, every team in every company, every person in every company can use Alice for some reason for some way, which is different than like having an analytics platform where you're like, well, I'm going to go in and target this specific, you know, persona and sell into this and blah, 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 whatever it is. And in this specific case, it was, well, where do you focus? So the first thing was like for the first year, just let's figure out where the opportunity is. We had some hypotheses around that. So we ended up doing actually a lot on the employee side of things, but start Mm -hmm. to realize that, that, that it's considered a nice to have, not a necessity because as soon as like it's, it's been brought into the heightened area right now, because all of a sudden everyone's like, oh my God, everyone's remote. We got to, we got to invest in our people. But as soon as people start going back to hybrid and some of these other things, you're going to realize that there's going to be some of a swell down there. So what I said is I made a conscious decision, you know, sort of going into the 2017-ish timeframe, you know, sort of towards the end there, be like, we have a lot of companies using this on the sales and marketing side. How do we just focus on that? So we ended up cutting out almost 400, 500 customers, you know, out of that. And so almost starting with like a dozen and building the business back up as a SaaS platform focused on sales and marketing, because it was all about that, that like program they're subscribing to, not just, oh, I'm going to send some gifts off, you know, for some random thing. And that's basically it. So just a quick clarification at the beginning, it wasn't SaaS that people were just sending gifts whenever they thought of it. Nope. And we made a transaction margin. Yeah. Ah, transaction. Because we made we because again, go back to my e-commerce roots. The unfair advantage was I knew all the Warby Parkers and you know Mm -hmm. the Gromits and all these other companies, and I just went to them and I was like, "I'm going to hand you free customers. Just give me a give me a margin off of that." And then it was free for anyone to use the platform and just come on. But it also caused episodic usage, not Mm -hmm. programmatic usage, because they're actually subscribing to the Alice approach. That was what we. That was the big breakthrough that we had in 2017, which led us to have you know raising our seed rounds because we started to show some of that traction around uh-huh. how we were, how we were you know fundamentally approaching the business there. So it was which what year did, did the seed round come in? Is that 2017 when you so made? So we did seed? an angel angel round in 2016. Okay. Um, we did two tranches in that. So we did one in October, September, October, October ish of 2016, and then another one in February. So those were like a small, small rounds. It was like half a million total between those two. Mm-hmm. And then we raised um, 5.4 million in, uh, in September, going into October of 2017. So it was almost a year later after we actually had that. But by that point, we had sort of learned a lot of the a lot of the stuff that was that was happening there and kind of like built a much tighter hypothesis hypothesis around what's the fundamental thing we're actually trying to solve here, knowing that it's a huge industry and whatnot. Would you agree or, or recommend the approach you took of kind of bootstrapping and, and, and getting to that point before you brought in the funding um, versus get bringing it right at the beginning? hundred percent. I mean, I, I um, advise a lot of, you know, women owned and minority owned businesses right now as startups right now. And I tell them the same thing. I'm like, because there's one fundamental concept behind it. Every dollar in is a piece of equity out. So even when you're spending capital, like when I think about it, my, my first business was bootstrapped, right? So I kind of, I'm biased on this anyway, right? Because there's different ways of growing a business, right? You can just raise tons of capital and figure things out, which people do. They figure out businesses, you know, and there's an unfair advantage to having some capital, you know, in some of those cases. But a lot of times it also causes unfocused you know, approaches to a market, which means you basically take like a checkbox strategy instead of a instead of a strategy around like, well, what is the what is it that you're actually trying to solve for in in those specific cases? So getting back to the funding, 
the deeper and farther you can go by showing traction, the less of the company you're going to give away, and also the higher the value of the business is at that specific point, especially if you can be testing out very focused hypotheses from the get-go, which again, I didn't do in the agency, and this business was much more concerted, concerted and, um, and you know, intentional in terms of how I was thinking about you know, those, those elements, and just got more intentional as time went on because we just learned more. You're like a learning machine, constantly evolving and constantly learning more as you, as you go. If you had to think back to successful tactics that work to help you focus on those learning mechanisms, what tactics did you find and would recommend to others? Um, talk to customers, right? I think there's my, I'll be honest, like my business before Alice, you know, I, it was called C-Fit, you know, another horrible name, uh, which is fine, um, which again goes to the intentionality of Alice, you know, why, why it was picked, which I can go into later if you're interested. But the the uh, fundamentals of that was that I didn't do enough user research. We built on a cool concept, but it was like, it wasn't focused enough in terms of what's the actual pain point that you're solving for. Like you have to have empathy for what your customer is actually going through in order to truly be able to solve that problem. Now, mm -hmm. there's a difference between just going and solving the actual problem they want versus understanding that you're taking an opinion against that, which is where innovation actually happens, right? Break that so, down for me. So if you go in and you're saying, okay, I need to solve for, you know, sending more emails, the problem is, okay, I'm building a system so you can actually just spam people more, but you're not taking an understanding as to like, what's the vision of the business. So you have to be understanding as to like, what's the vision for the business? What's the DNA of the values of the business, which forms the core of the people and your approach and your, your ability to, to adhere to those values of the business, which should link up directly to the vision, right? And your, your vision of the future. And then you're actually building the business, you know, against those, against that, 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 that uh, capacity. And you're building hypotheses, which have those as the undertones of how you're actually driving the business forward as, as you go there too. The problem with too many companies is they come in and say, I'm going to solve this little problem here. And again, you could, th there's many ways to skinny cat, right? You can go into so many different ways of, of doing this, but the more intentional you are around this, the easier it is for you to actually have control over what those hypotheses are and then be able to test and know whether you're actually moving in the right direction or not with those specific, with those specific places. So any of these companies, I'm always, when it comes down to advising, I'm always, always challenging back and saying, what's the actual problem that you're trying to solve right now? What's mm. the vision? Where are you on the journey? What's the stepping stone? What's the next stepping stone? And if you can't articulate what that next stepping stone is, then you've got problems. And you can't articulate the previous stepping stones that got you there and tell and start to tie a thread through that. That's it. Again, your dude, uh, angel rounds in the beginning, like in your your in your nascent stage, like you're just trying to figure out anything, right? But you have to have a focused hypothesis at least to test against. Otherwise, you're just like you're you're shotgunning things all over the place, and you're not actually like like building towards something. The whole purpose of a hypothesis is either to be right or wrong, and then be able to take the next the next route. And you've got to be systematic on that versus versus this like throw spaghetti at the wall type of a thing and hope something sticks, you know, as you go. It sounds like you're taking the past experience of not doing that uh, hypothesis approach and, and really tying back to the customer. You, you decided to be this very intentional with Alice. Um, obviously, there, you can't um, do it by yourself. You, you've built a team, but help me understand, like at what point and stage did, were, were you leading the charge every step of the way? When, when, what was the most important first hire, major hire that you made that really helped you scale? So um, I'll say this is a high level theme. Again, something I always say when I'm advising companies is that the job of a CEO is to put themselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. 
every stage of the business. And, and that's something that's hard to learn, something I did a horrible job in my first company at, and something that took me some time to actually like tell that advice to people and then actually realize I have to take my own advice you know, in terms of that. So you, you have to understand that your role is to figure out how do you build scale inside the organization with people that are smarter than you that bring other perspectives and other experiences to the business, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole another segment we can go down in terms of like diversity of perspectives and just diversity of people and backgrounds and things like that. But you know, focusing on like the people that we brought in, um, I had two, two key hires in the beginning stages of the business that we, that we brought in. One is Tori, who's still with the business. The other one was, was a guy named Ryan who we're still friends with and sort of led the initial customer success charges that were there during those like very early nascent stages um, you know, that were there as well. And those were the two that stayed with the business specifically through the first two to two and a half years that really helped shape a lot of the stuff because we were just in this constant learning you know, experience motion that was there as we went. And they started building the teams around that and starting to build in more, more, you know, more pieces as the stages of the business you know, continue to go on. Um, so that was sort of the first stage. And then as the business got to like the seed stage, all of a sudden the executive team broadened and you started to have more folks that started to come into the business, you know, that, that were, you know, instrumental, like, you know, I had a customer success, Sean, and, you know, Mike who's our, you know, head of sales and like these folks that started to bring much more experience around being in situations at higher scale. What you want to do, like a business goes through an inflection point, usually every about a year and a half to two years, sometimes faster than that. Sometimes it's a year, you know, in there. And you have to understand that you've got to align the right experience and people around you to be accountable for the things that you're going to be able to do to scale. And you Mm. don't want to be guessing at that, but you also need to have, again, going back to diversities, you also have to be willing to take chances on certain people and be able to invest in those specific people, but also surround them with the right types of experience that's there. And it's a balance of that. You have too many, too many experienced people. You have too many habits that are that are counterbalancing each other that are there, but you do have to understand that like, as the stages go on, you're building kind of a layered cake of, of, you know, accountability structure and making sure that that's being again, rooted in the DNA of the, the values of the business, then you're, you're on target there. What would you say is one of your biggest lessons learned or insights from going from a, a service business uh, uh, um, of an agency to um, a SaaS model? What, what are some of the biggest lessons learned there? Uh, first lesson was told to me by one of our <laughs> one of our my my favorite investors uh, in the early days. Um, it's still one of my favorite investors, uh, Eric Paley, who's uh, in Founder Collective. And I remember sitting down with him in his office, and this was right after we raised the seed round. And he challenged me with two things, and he said, "Okay, the first the first thing is this." He goes, "You're big," because I asked him, I was like, "I'm always trying to ask questions, like what's what do you see as the biggest weakness?" So just because I always I like to have the the data points to understand like what what things I'm doing well and not doing well. And he said, your number one problem is that you're 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 an agency CEO from the core. Hmm. There's a big difference between being an agency CEO versus a product-based CEO. Now again, this is three and a half years ago. And he said an agency CEO's job is to say yes. A product CEO's job is to say no. Hmm. And I, it didn't sink in really what that meant until probably about a year later, you know, when I started to understand what that meant. And again, Definitely more focused, definitely more intentional, definitely willing to say no, but I still have the agency habit of saying, well, why can't we do it all? You know, like what's stopping us, which is good in a way because it challenges, um, you know, linear, linear thinking in many cases or binary thinking in a lot of cases. Again, my art background, sort of some of that creativity side of things is like, there's always a way to do something more creative and, and think scrappily around how you actually solve these problems. 
And that's also a problem with cash. It's like you, you can get complacency built around that too, right? And that's a big thing I'm trying to instill in the business right now is like, you still got to be like, you know, uh, cost conscious around things, but in being able to invest heavier in hypotheses that we know are actually working and we know fit into the vision and the, and the, the you know, the operationalness of the business that we're trying to move forward here too. Mm-hmm. So that was one piece of advice, right? That, you know, agency CEOs say yes and no. The other one goes back to what I just talked about, which was he challenged me. He goes, okay, just raise $5 million. He goes, why are you not spending $5 million next month? And I was like, what? You know, like it came out of sort of left field. And I'm like, uh, I tell, I joke about, joke about this with him all the time, by the way. So, you know, and I, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you just go spend $5 million next month. What, why don't you go, just go do it and blow this company up? Like, what, what would you do? The point of it was to say, if you went and spent the money right now, you don't have confidence in where that money is actually being placed. So before you go spending the money, make sure you have the right confidence level in terms of where you're going to be spending the money, where that hypothesis is allowing you to say, yes, let's double down. And you're starting to get a lot of yeses in a row instead of this, this like, you know, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. And you're constantly failing and you're kind of like in this like teetering phase where you're just burning cash to burn cash. Mm-hmm. And again, again, having advised a lot of companies, even including Alice, you have to balance that because there are some things where you can cash allows you to test multiple hypotheses at the same time. So you have to understand like it is a burning cash business to get to the place that you need to be, to be there. But there's a difference in terms of just go throw a billion quadrillion dollars at something and hope it sticks and then build no unit economics into the business versus you actually building, you know, consistency and, and intentionality around how you're actually showing, you know, sustainable growth as you're, as you're building the business. As a leader, how do you organize your own thoughts and day and, and process to be able to stay on top of it and make sure you're, you are following all those proper hypotheses and not going down sidetracks and not getting lost in the minutia? I mean, that's hard. I mean, it's much easier when you're a five-person company, 10-person company, 20-person company, you know, right from the beginning, you know, that's there because you're in every conversation or most conversations. We're in the same room, you know, in most of those those cases. I mean, for us, we were, we were actually a distributed team uh, almost from day one, you know, there, because we had some people in Russia, we had some people in the US, we had some people in the Philippines, we had, you know, folks in all different, all different places that were there. And, um, and so it was, it was always like, how do we bring everybody together? But you can have that conversation daily. We did a daily standup for the first like two years of the business, where even as it got to 20, 25 people every morning at nine o'clock, everybody stood around for 15 minutes. And we just talked about learnings in the business across the board. And it was a really cool way for everyone to be like, what are we hearing? What are we doing? What do we need to focus in on? And it was like a quick prioritization across the business and like a unit, you know, unifying, you know, moment around the business as a business grows you have to be again be very intentional with the with the constructs and the frameworks you put into the business to be able to communicate that across the business so everybody understands and has a very tight understanding as to like what's their role in solving the bigger you know things for the business now we are not perfect at this by any stretch of imagination actually we have a major initiative going on right now about how you build alignment in terms of this because you can very quickly get unfocused without having that alignment in terms of what are we actually trying to do, you know, in, in, in the world and in the business, especially where we've gotten to as, as a business as a whole and sort of our, our place in the market as well. You're at, you're at like a, how many team members now? A hundred and 170 or so. 170. So going from obviously 20 people and stand up, no, no problem to 170. That's just, that's just not possible anymore. Everybody no, can. I mean, as, as soon as you, there's different inflection points. I learned from my first business, right? That was like at, you know, 10 people, you know, sort of somebody, one of my friends told me the law of, of like nines, 
you know, or laws of threes of nines. It was like nine, 27, blah, 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 whatever, whatever goes from there, you know, and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But really it's like, you have your, you know, your 10, your 25, your 50, your 150, you know, or 100, 150. There's like these inflection points where you just have to keep reassessing those frameworks to keep everybody in line with what are you trying to drive towards? The other thing that's really important there too is how do you drive that with an era of simplicity? It's very, very easy to get get unfocused if you're not actually driving towards a very simple mission and a very simple you know vision in terms of how people are going there. And again, ours is a very far-reaching vision. Like we know what we're trying to do, and there's 17 different ways till Sunday to get to that to that vision. So it's important to actually keep rebaselining the business because also the market's changing constantly. You know, the competitive landscape, which is great for us, honestly. I love like you have to see seeing competitors in a space is actually first of all, it's 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 um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a way for you to drive yourself, right. You know, in terms of, of mm. continuing to innovate, but it also shows that the, the space is humongous and that mm, again, like in our space, yeah, we, we can have $5 billion, but like, again, to go back to hundreds of billions of dollars in the, in the, in the industry, like mm. there could be $5 billion businesses that come out of the, out of the space. Like it's, it's, it's just reasonable is what's the approach that works in terms of different ways, you know, as, as things go on there. I, I love I love your mentality of, of how you approach the problem and, and willing to grow. Uh, last question to just kind of wrap up our time together. Looking forward, what kind of uh, tech predictions do you make? Because I know you're both art and, and computer science. Yeah. You love technology itself. But what tech predictions would you make uh, in the next uh, year or two, near, near term and long term, five, ten years? So the first thing uh, I talk a lot of, yeah, with a lot of my friends is that we're going to move from this era of automating um, – quantity, you know, and, and, you know, automating the, the like activities to automating intelligence. And people have to understand that there's going to be this like five-year journey that people are going to get to where it's going to be a lot more about like, you're not gonna have to think as much, but it's going to allow you to focus on a lot more of the activities and make them a lot more valuable as time goes on. There's a lot of work that has to be done in there, right? And there's a lot of things, especially as you look at, like, you know, we're very, we spend a lot of time in like the data privacy world, which, you know, even look at like Google and like the, you know, the cold cookies situation stuff that's happening right now, you know, as well, like there's, and even like Facebook and Apple, you know, always like following that story as well, you know, very closely is like anything, markets can shift and change at all different cases, which changes behavior, in the space. And then you get a COVID, which change fundamentally changes. Like you're in my, in my house right now. So you're getting a chance to see like my four-year-old's books, you know, and like my, my wife's art and stuff like that, you know, that's, that's here. It's like very, it's in creepy scale, you know, skulls and stuff. Like there's, there's all different ways to, to, you know, be in somebody's space now and be more personal, you know, on a one-to-one basis. So I think like some of that ice has been broken and that's going to speed up, you know, that, that intelligence, you know, facet. Part of that is like just knowing things. Like you've got the, the, you know, the different industries, like the revenue intelligence they're talking about and, you know, conversational intelligence and all these things that people are talking about, which gives you relevance around that. And then there's all this other element around like, well, how do you do that at a higher scale around that? What we were talking about in the previous, you know, episode to plug that for you is like, how do you scale authenticity? And how do you actually continue to drive, you know, drive that as, as time goes on as well? And we just, there's a vision I have in terms of how, what that's going to look like in the future and how, what we're doing right now and how we're being a center point of that is such a fundamental, you know, and the most emotional place to actually be, which is a big piece, piece that, that has to be, you know, uh, evolved inside of business as well. And obviously you've got AR and VR and all these things that are going to totally fundamentally change how people look at shopping and I'm an e-commerce geek. So like I'm looking very closely at a lot of those trends, you know, crypto or blockchain, you know, is going to fundamentally change how people are thinking about, you know, things. I mean, you know, NFTs are interesting, but you know, I think that's going to be a interesting, interesting evolution as time goes on. That's there. So there's a lot of tech tech trends, but 
privacy control, behavior change, shopping, all that type of stuff is going to be like, you know, a, a fundamental difference that's there. But in the in the real world where people have to interact with each other, there's going to be a lot of technology focused on on how you actually bring people together. Bringing people together, that that is the future. Thank you so much, Greg. This has been course, uh, Thanks, thoroughly enjoyable. Definitely for those that want to hear more about Alice, go back and listen to part one of our discussion on uptechreport.com. You can also head over to alice.com, A-L-Y-C-E.com, be able to request a demo and learn more about their platform. Thanks again for your time, Greg. It's great to have you on. Appreciate it. And we'll see you guys on the next episode of Uptech Report. That concludes the audio version of this episode. To see the original and more, visit our Uptech Report YouTube channel. If you know a tech company we should interview, you can nominate them at uptechreport.com. Or if you just prefer to listen, make sure you're subscribed to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Mm -hmm.